This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders. Was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, welcome back to Studio Secrets A to Z, and I'm your host, Anthony J. Resta. And our next guest, well, I was thinking about this this morning, there is not enough superlatives to describe him. Not only is he one of the most highly regarded uh, recorded session musicians of all time, but he's uh, one of the most musical people you'll ever meet on literally thousands of <laughs> iconic recordings. Welcome today, Mr. Tim Pierce. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure uh, and an honor. It's a thrill, man. I've been thinking about this for a long time. And, uh, you know, you and I, the last eight years, spent, you know, countless hours working on things together. And I'm just always baffled by the amount of, you know, like things that are perfect for the song. And you always give me like more than I could possibly use, like in in such an effortless way. And you just make it look so easy. And that's kind of where I wanted to start off talking about, um, you know, from an educational standpoint, you've really taken things to a a high level with your YouTube channel. And I've been learning so much from you. Um, You know, where where can I begin with that? Like, how, how, how did you learn to play the perfect parts for songs? I mean, that's a big question. <laughs> well, we all start out with the same dream, and mine was, uh, you know, late 60s rock, basically. Actually, no, the original dream was uh, Top 40 Radio in the early 60s. I was born in 1958. By the time I was five years old, I was very aware of music, and I fell in love with everything I heard on the radio in every genre, every style, from Downtown by Petula Clark to Peter, Paul, and Mary to MacArthur Park to uh, the wow. Beatles, to Otis Redding, to B.B. King, to even the novelty songs that were on the radio. In the 60s, it was pretty amazing. You would hear a very disparate and kind of magical mix of anything and everything on the radio all the time. And that's where my love of music comes from. And then when I realized I couldn't be an athlete because I wasn't large enough, and this happens, this is actually a common thing, I had to find something else, and my love of music uh, drew me to the guitar, so I started playing guitar at age 12. That was 1970. Wow. So by then, it was Hendrix and Clapton and Billy Gibbons and Johnny Winter and, you know, all, all the, the, you know, <laughs> the big guitar players. Sure. And that, that's, that's where it all started. And then by the time I was in my late teens, I was trying to think, what do I want to do? I only lived 800 miles from L.A. I lived in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So I always, I always dreamt of coming to California. So when I was 21, after playing in some bars and getting, you know, 
plateauing in the bars in Albuquerque after I graduated from high school. I drove here and started working uh, at the end of 1979. L.A. And at the end of 1979 was actually quite a welcoming place. That's and you could actually enter anywhere on the ladder as a musician. There were gigs at every level. I got gigs out of this little newspaper called The Recycler, which was a uh, secondhand anything newspaper. And there were, <laughs> there were gigs, you know, rehearsing, playing, and there was just so much activity. It was, it was a giant campus uh, of a giant music campus, L.A. And, and then oddly, uh, I hate to say this, too, it was actually not expensive, uh, 1979. So <laughs> it was a great place to get a foothold and then... Uh, I started meeting musicians, started doing more stuff, and then I started doing some records. I did some big records even a, a couple of years after I'd gotten here. And then I joined Rick Springfield's band, and that took me through the body of the 80s. We, uh, we did four or five records. We did world tours. I even wrote a couple of songs on a couple of those records. And um, then after that, I actually, uh, after, after Rick took a hiatus in 1987, I think, I actually went broke. And I, wow. I uh, started teaching uh, a little bit. And I, but the main thing I started in the late 80s when I started doing publishing demos for songwriters, that meant sometimes three destinations a day having songwriters argue over my parts. I got $100 <laughs> a song, sometimes three times a day. And that's how I made my living for two years. The benefit of that is that's where I learned to play parts and get sounds. So sorry for the long answer to your simple no, question. No, but it's, that's it's, when it happened. It's a wonderful answer, and it, and it makes makes perfect sense. You were in the trenches. You know, and you were thrown into these situations where you, you know, you had to juggle not just the the, the parts, but the the actual personalities. Exactly. Yeah. And that's really the part that nobody ever really talks about as a session musician. How much you have to be able to read the room. Like, you know, you have your producer there, you have your artist there, and you're playing. And I've seen you do this. You walk the perfect line between the artist, the producer, and what you think is right for the song, and that is mastery at a very high level. Talk a little bit about that. Well, uh, there are a lot of ways to figure out what to do every minute that you're working, and there are no minutes when you can rest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's for sure. So the way I've set up my studio, I actually can look everybody in the eye. I can look the artist, uh, the artist in the eye, the manager, the composer, the engineer, whoever's in the room, I'm facing them because I have a mirror image set up here. That has helped. But even, even before that, when I would go into big studios, I was always looking at people, judging their mood, judging by the look on their face, whether they were excited about what I was doing or what we were doing. I have a lot of empathy for people, you know, and I, I just, I was always hyper aware of everybody in the room. And certainly if I didn't have an idea, I would ask for an idea. Or if I didn't have my part fully flushed out, if there was somebody really talented in the room, like Pat Leonard or David Foster or sure. uh, Walter A or any of these, these monster musician, keyboard players, um, geniuses, um, I'd say, hey, hey, how do I end this, or or what chord is that, or whatever. So, never afraid to ask for help. Never afraid to ask what the artist's favorite kind of music is. Never afraid to doubt what I was doing and fix it immediately. I have said this before, but the, the idea is that you have to approach everything with a huge ego, well, with a strong ego, and then when they tell you they don't want it and they don't like it, 
it obliterates you and your ego, and then you have to bring it back full force again. So you have to let go. Yeah, and then you have to bring it back. Like you know, you have to play things like you've owned them your whole life, and and you have, so you have to come on strong. And then when they go no, or when you can tell they're unhappy. You have to, you have to die. Backpedal. <laughs> you have to die and go to heaven and come back. And, uh, so you have to get your ego obliterated and bring it back full force. Well, you know, I've been in the situation where, you know, the first maybe four years that I worked with you on numerous songs, I, I was just so in, in awe of you. It was hard for me to even speak a lot of the time. You know, finally, once we got to know each other, I started to open up a little bit. And, and as you began to trust my musical instincts, you would ask me more and I would sing things and we'd, tr we'd find yeah. like happy medium. So it was, it was a long process. It wasn't like you're gonna, not going to get that kind of relationship with somebody in one or two sessions. You know? It's true. You're a little careful at first. But th th that being said, all it takes is one session for two people to bond in music yep. or a group of people. And then, then you just you feel so comfortable. And I, even, you know, I always, the, the first 15 minutes, the first half hour are really crucial. I always try and do something. I always try and win the first half hour so that, you know, we do one thing that everybody likes, then everybody trusts each other. And you're off to a good forward. foot yeah. on a good foot. Yeah, that, that's just remarkable talent um, to be able to, to negotiate all those things. And, and you, you just, one of the main things I learned from you is, a, is something you say sometimes. You, you're like, let me do that again. I'm not obeying the vocal. And, yeah. and that, for me, was a life-changing um, statement because, you know, I've been producing records for decades and, and I can't tell you how many times I st I've stepped on a background vocal or stepped on a lead vocal with a certain phrase rhythmically or whatever. And I became hyper-vigilant um, about it after working with you. And that, that's, that's one of the, I think, the things that you, is your forte, you, you build around the most important things in the song. Well, know? and sometimes your job as a... Uh, studio musician is to literally disappear do something that grows the track you know something something magical that just kind of disappears behind the vocal and then choose your moments to actually do a, you know a motif or a hook which you know, which you're step so, in and around the vocal you're so yeah. phenomenal though at yeah. coming up with those those hooks that just like make the song i mean you've done Thank it you. for me countless times and you know it's just just a wonderful process um you know People don't, a lot of our pe listeners probably don't know a lot of your history. Some, it'd be fun to talk about, you know, some of the, the I mean, it's, I, I've got the list here and it's just, <laughs> it's kind of mind boggling, but, um, you know, some of the, these iconic records, like I, I saw a video recently where you were talking about a crowded house uh -huh. and you, how you worked with uh, Mitchell Froome and tell us a little bit about that. Cause I, I thought that was fascinating. Well, that was the actual era when I was doing publishing demos and we did that record, uh, kind of right at the end of the 80s, I think. I, I can't remember what yeah. year it came out. Um, and I joined the band, actually, as kind of a, a, a ringer. We rehearsed together, and we did all the tracking together. And then as, as it got further along into overdubs, Neil started feeling more confident as a guitar player. And he, he started doing more. But Mitchell didn't know when he brought them from Australia uh, if, if Neil was going to cover all the guitar parts. So, and they were w open, you know. It was, I, I loved those guys. I had so much fun with them. But we tracked it. That was what you hear on the record. What you hear me doing, oh, those are live. And, and on Crowded House, it's the ambient, dreamy stuff that I play around Neil's riff. Now, because when you end up on a, on a song like that, and people assume you do all the guitars, so that amazing opening, a lot of people assume I did that. I did not do that. That was on Neil's demo, uh, and I even did a video. The video you saw, I actually play his demo with him playing that that part on it. Wow! I had a cassette of it, but 
uh, it was really a great thing for my work at that point because every songwriter here in L.A., that was their favorite song of all time. It, it's, so, it's so iconic. When it came out and, that, and people found out that I worked on it, I got so much work after that. It was like Don't dream it's everybody over. wanted to title? write that song. Is that the song. right title? Don't dream it's Don't over. Don't dream it's over. It doesn't really get bigger than that. So it's, <laughs> you know, um, there's so many uh, of these types of you know things in your discography. I mean, like Michael Jackson. What was it like working with Michael Jackson? The um, day I worked with him, he was absolutely normal. You know, it's funny. Um, he was pretty wild out in the world of press and you know reputation and career and all that stuff. But when we did Black or White. Uh, I was working with Bill Bottrell, who I know really well, uh, because we had done a big project, Toy Matinee, together before that. Oh, we're going to get into that. And, and, and Bill said, hey, I need you to come do this thing. <clears throat> You're going to get credit on one song, and then I'm going to have you ghost on another song I can't give you credit for. I said, okay, that's fine. <clears throat> and I came in, and they want, Michael wanted a bridge that sounded like Motley Crue's Dr. Love, I think. Uh, huh? Dr. Feelgood. Dr. Feelgood. Okay, so yeah, Dr. Feelgood. Cool. Uh, who, who did Dr. Love? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I did that. And uh, Michael came in and he was super, looked me straight in the eye, super nice, super normal. He was wearing jeans. Wow. Black loafers and a V-necked red sweater. Wow. And what a he, memory. He, yeah. he looked completely normal and nice and he was... Very, very uh, cordial, and he liked what we did, and it ended up on the record. The thing is, you don't know in a situation like that, because these records, they take forever, um, and you don't know if your part's going to get replaced by something else two months later or a week later. Until you hear it. And uh, Yeah, and it, so it held, and I, I got my name on the song, and then the other song I did, a famous guitar player had played the rhythm, they weren't happy with the sound, so I replaced it, and that just goes unmentioned. No kidding. Well, yeah. that's amazing. Well, since you brought up Bill Bartrell, we this is a good segue into uh, Toy Matinee, which is literally one of my favorite albums of all time for so many reasons. Sonically, the performances, the songwriting, the the, the moods, the emotions, the textures. I, I, I just, I really would like to get into a little Toy Matinee because I know a lot of our fans um, of the, the podcast are also fans of that that band. And um, so where do we start? Why, why don't you give us some backstory on Toy Matinee, and then we'll go... go well, an engineer friend tracks. of mine recommended me. Uh, Patrick Leonard was putting together a band, and he, he wanted it to be unique because he had been hiring every studio musician in the city f to do all his Madonna hit songs. You know, he had all this, and he, he had done... Uh, he had just finished L Like a Virgin. It was in the can. It was about to be released, and he's, it was time for him to do his own project. And... He wanted somebody who didn't sound like a typical studio musician. And at that point in time, once again, it was right around 1990, uh, I was still using traditional amp heads and mono guitar sounds a lot. And a lot of the other guys were doing a lot of stereo stuff. So he liked that I was more like a British, traditional British guitar player in that sense. And that I was a little rough around the edges and somewhat unique. Um, the other thing is that he had asked Lyle Workman to do it, and Lyle said, "No, it's not not the right good, not the not the time for me to do this. I got too much other stuff going on right now." And so, I part of, part of the reason I got the gig is because Lyle Workman passed on it. Wow. Uh, so, and Lyle and I talk about that. It's funny. Um, 
He's a very busy film composer now. But uh, uh, so I jumped into this thing, and Pat hired us to to do the record, and we were there uh, for about two and a half months. Uh, once again, everything was live off the floor and then overdubbed on. So most of what you hear are live performances that we worked up very painstakingly. Uh, you know, we m- might have spent two days on one song. Another song, maybe, maybe we got quickly. Pat, he, he told me, one of my favorite songs is called Queen of Misery. I love that one. And he, got, he, he had his part, you know, on the first take. And he, he said, I was sitting there for two days, and Bill kept wanting us to do it again and again. And, and I couldn't figure out why. And then I figured, oh, Bill wants my anger to come through the keyboard. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> I mean, there's a video I did about that where I interviewed everybody, and, and it's worth watching. It oh, my gosh, yeah. We have yeah. to, you know, maybe we can yeah. supply a link for that. Um, the, the 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 fact that that was cut live on the floor is absolutely mind-boggling if you listen to the record like you take a track like last last train home last plane out last plane so out. i'm glad you i'm glad we had to last plane out <laughs> last plane out uh, i've always yeah, yeah. yeah. dr love and last i have the list right in front of me home. and i have i still can't get it right but i that's one of my favorite songs of all time that that acoustic guitar riff that really fast yeah progressive kind yeah. of thing and then when the drums come in and the the, the the synth bass I'm like oh this is all programmed this has to be all like in a sequencer these guys were using like an MC500 or something you know because it's just that tight but it feels so ridiculously good and years later I find out from you that nope that's people just playing and now it's it's mind-boggling sonically and it's mind-boggling from a performance standpoint what's going on there I, yeah that just freaks me out when I even to this day and sonically it's, it's well, that's Bill Bottrell. Um, holy uh, moly. I asked him about that, and he just, he, what did he say? What did I he used do? To, I mean, like. He just said, I used to just breathe that stuff. I mean, he, I asked him about how he got those sounds, and he was just like, I don't even think about it. He just was a supremely talented musician and engineer. And, you know, he's a songwriter, you know. People use that. CD to like tune PA systems in stadiums. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean that... yeah, I mean, and you know, Bill wrote a lot of the songs on Sheryl Crow's biggest first record. You know, that's right. Um, and... A lot of the songs you love the most came from him, um, and so he comes uh, he's a great that... songwriter and a great guitar player. So anyway, he got the sounds. But the the thing I will remind you of is what we did then and what you did back then too is that we worked up a song at least for a few hours. Yeah. If not for a couple a day. of days, yeah, yeah, and and just being together, working something up for a few hours, you know, people don't do that anymore, you know, <laughs> and and you can get, you know, with great musicians, you can get it. Well, like Nashville, that. <laughs> that's the way they make a lot of the country records, right? They they do. they go even too fast. That I I I'll take. I mean, I'll qualify that a little bit. They generally do two songs per session. So it is, it is, those are more first takes by yeah. musicians who've never heard the music before. So it's not quite that, but... Yeah, it's working it up like, like a band I mean, style. yeah, there's, there's a supreme difference between doing a song in 90 minutes and doing it in, you know, you know, eight or 10 hours. You can really, really dig in if you spend a little more time. And the keyboard sounds and the parts, and Patrick is just... Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, what a band. Yeah. yeah. Tell us a little bit about Kevin. I mean, that's a tragic story. And I know um, there used to be a picture of him right over there. Um, yeah. Um, Kevin was super young and Pat found him at a Yamaha Battle of the Bands contest. And they they uh, they got along for about six months. Yeah. Uh, and then they didn't. But just, you know, the, the, the room and the 
the city and the planet was not big enough for both of them. <laughs> <laughs> that happens, yeah. Here's the thing, though, and, and I have to say this about Pat. Every, uh, every inch of the music and most of the lyrics are, and melodies are Pat's. Okay. So if you want to know what Kevin Gilbert did, listen to Thud, his solo record. Okay. But the lyrics, the melodies, and 100% of the music on Toy Matinee were, came out of Pat Leonard's mind. And the lyrics, too. Yeah. Okay, see, I never knew that. The lyrics were written by Pat, Kevin, and Guy Pratt. Okay. Together. But, but the, the, you know, Pat would bring the lyrics, and then uh, Kevin and Guy would, you know, Fine change team. and finish them. Kevin... Uh, was a musical genius and a brilliant programmer. I had him record the drums on my solo record at his studio. I had him play piano, mellotron, and organ on my solo record at oh, his wow. studio. I'd love to hear and, that. And uh, he he was amazing. He just he had a little bit of trouble uh, living down here and making a lot of money and being a little bit disenchanted. Oh sure. And uh, and he left us too early. Oh, and that's you know that's you know I. We were all devastated, and I wish he had, you know, I wish he'd stayed around. Yeah. Some of the songs on that record, like Turn It On Salvador, is was about Salvador Dali, uh -huh. I think. Yeah. The, some of the, the, the lyrics are just, just brilliant, the way they all comes together. Yeah, that's Pat. Yeah. And I was, I've always wanted to ask you, is um, The Queen of Misery actually about Madonna? It is, yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's good. We, that's why we call this Studio Secrets, by the way. <laughs> no, it's okay. I think Pat would even say that out. out yeah, I'm sure somebody out. knows about yeah. it by now. But uh, it's funny. We had Steve Roney on recently in, in, the, in the last, uh, I, actually, I don't want to give it away. He yelled something out as I was signing off on the podcast, and it was like, that's the studio secrets that we're here for. <laughs> so people are going to have to tune in to actually Well, get... we've, yeah, we've told some secrets so far. So yeah, no, I love that. I love that. Um, let's, God, I don't even know where to go from here, but I'd like to you know, take a break from some of the records, and let's talk a little bit about your, your approach sonically. Like, I, I just, the way you use amps on the, the edge of breakup and the way you... You know, just how you craft your tone. I think that we have a lot of gear geeks here that are interested in that kind of stuff. Maybe you could start with like your, you know, a typical day setup. Like how, you know, how many amps you have set up. And well, I used to take more to the studio. Uh, I don't even really have a studio rig anymore. I just put stuff in my car and take it down myself. But I used to have a truck show up with Cartage, massive truck with. Um, I'd like I like bring nine or ten heads, three pedal boards, a couple of cabinets, <laughs> forty to sixty guitars. Wow! Because you you just people would ask, hey, do you have an old tele? Hey, do you have a Jaguar? What about a you know a Dan Electric? You know, I mean, they would ask, and if you didn't have it, your heart would sink. So you pretty much showed up with everything under the sun and there was kind of an arms race between musicians we all just bought everything we possibly could all the time and brought it to the studio basically <laughs> that's amazing um, but i i would have you know marshall's voxes fenders boutique amps you know yeah. um dr z for, for a little while yeah, yeah. i always had had everything you know um high gain stuff uh high old british stuff high watch white? yeah yeah and i never had a white no yeah. but uh and Really, what you're doing is you're orchestrating sounds. So, and you want to, you know, the, the great thing about guitar is that you can choose from so many decades 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. And if you want to do something that's like uh, Brian Setzer, you pluck a little of that out. If you want to do something that's like, you know, Stephen Stills, you pluck a little of that out. If you want to do something like uh, George Harrison, you grab that. 
Uh, what about the edge? You too, you grab that. What about the killers? I mean, you, it's, it's, what about Pearl Jam? I mean, you, you actually can choose from this enormous sonic palette from five decades. And that's what you do when you're, when you're in the studio with the guitar. You're orchestrating and pulling sounds and parts from every decade. And that's amazing to have that kind of a musical vocabulary that you can dip in. And if somebody needs a, a surfy kind of baritone, right. then like, you know, oh, that's a Fender yeah. reverb. That's a, you know, so there's a lot of, you know, research and, and stuff that goes into building a vocabulary that enables somebody to do that. It's, that's, it's remarkable. You can and, reverse engineer it too. I mean, if, uh, you know, I, you know, if some of these people, I didn't, I couldn't do what they did, but I would, uh, I would kind of, pretend I could and then learn to do it. And, you know, you, you, you can figure, figure it out. You can reverse engineer it. Wow. That's just so interesting. You know, pick, even pickups with guitars, like people, you know, you know, like say, let's just, as an example, like the fifties Gretches with the, um, the Armands, that mm-hmm. they're, that's so different than the filter. How do you say Filtertron? Yeah, they, I think you and I both like the Diarmid better. Probably. Yeah, 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 I love the gold. I have one with Filtertrons here that's very nice, but the Diarmid is just it's it's wide open. It's it's great. a gold foil kind of thing. Yeah. And what? How do you describe that? It's got this like mid range. Well, the thing about uh, Ry Cooter said something about humbucking pickups that it was kind of the death of guitar sound, and I wouldn't go that far. But the old pickups, they're more like microphones. Uh, Basically, it's a yeah. Microphone. When you tap on the guitar, yeah. it's going and, ping, and ping, so ping. it's the dynamic range is is huge. You know, depending on how hard you strike the string, it's really going to speak soft, medium, or loud, and you know, endless variations and gradations. And uh, they sparkle. There's more top end. There's more bottom end. Uh, and wow. more dynamic range. They're like microphones. That's so, really fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah. So, so the the single quote, the noisy pickups, you know, tend to sound <laughs> the best, and they're great with pedals too. You know, uh, fuzz pedals work only really work on single coil pickups. So, the, the Diarmond is kind of an example of that. It's just wide open. It's like a microphone. You're always with those. You're always yeah, like you got to find. You're that. moving around yeah. in the chair trying to find that spot yeah. where it's not going. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I love those, and I, I've you know over the years I started collecting not in the level you do, but like the guitars to me are like they're crayons. They're like they really literally. They're the one specific guitar. Like I have this old '50s K that has those big Kleenex box pickups oh, yeah. on it. Yeah. And nothing I have sounds like that. Yeah. Every now and then, if that's what you're looking for, you yeah. need that guitar. Yeah. And people, people are like, why do you have so many guitars? And I'm looking in this room, and there's like... <laughs> they all sound different. They all play different. And uh... I've, I've noticed over the years that you've used, used a lot of uh, PRS. Um... Well, and that's not a fashionable thing, really. You know, a lot of guitar players, frankly, would not use those guitars. But he became a friend of mine about a decade ago, and I... I like playing my friends' guitars, and they're very easy to play, and they sound great, and they stay in tune. So. I have a funny feeling that the ones that he makes you are a little bit different than the ones you grab off well, the shelf. Well, at, at this point, they're all the same. Maybe 10 years ago when, we, when I first met him, some were better than others, but they, they've every company now has reached a, a standard that's actually unbelievable. Isn't it crazy how the technology, like with the, what do they call the um, the, the fret machine? CNC machines and the yeah. Plec machines. The yeah. Plec, that's the yeah. one, yeah. It's it's like a different, it's a whole different era. Yeah. You know, I, I recently got a Cower guitar, Doug Cower. I actually Ooh, have, to nice. leave, I have to leave that over here for you to, to play Love sometimes. To yeah. oh, I'll leave it here for you because it's like, for me, not being a, a very good guitar player and like, I, I'm a parts guy and I come up with cool sounds. Mm-hmm. But um, when I started playing it, it was like, it just felt 
like unlike any guitar I've played and and it's so much easier to keep in tune when you get used to those old harmonies like from the 60s you know you're you're constantly you're bending like notes like at different points on the neck trying to make sure that it, you can get it in tune and with that it's like you're spoiled immediately so like the technology has a lot of people have this thing that vintage guitars are just you know they're that's the, the only thing to use you know but that's kind of like a not really true anymore i you know i i try not to fight that battle with anybody. Joe Bonamassa is a friend of mine, and Tom, Tom Bukovac is a friend of mine, too, and they would own, these guys only play vintage guitar. Right. And they, they really can't, you know... Is it a mindset? Or, or, is, uh, there, or is there something really to I, it? I don't know what to call it, yeah. but I, I'm not going to... You know, I, I, I will say this. When I was 10 years old, I showed up at the music store. And, well, there were a few in Albuquerque, and fell in love with the guitars on the wall in 1968, and then when I was 11 in 1969, when I was 12 in 1970, and uh, I think I got my first Strat used when I, in 1970. I fell in love with the new guitars on the wall in music stores when I was a kid, and I love new guitars just as much today as I did then. I don't really see the difference in... Uh, because the vintage aesthetic and all the quality has been brought up to such a level at this point... I don't see the difference in a Strat that's really good that I buy today off the wall uh, from the one in 1968 or 1969 or 1970. And, you know, certainly Gibson's, the best Les Pauls ever made were in 1959. That's just when they did it right. But these days, they've kind of gotten back to that. And then, you know, I work with a company called Heritage now, and they're they're in the original Gibson factory, and they I just got a Les Paul by them, and I'm... I, I would bet you it's as good as some of the 59s. I have friends who have 59s, yep. and I've played them all. And yep. I think the I think my new Les Pauls are better than those 59s. There's, I mean, that's all I'll say. It's just like, some, I, I'm a yeah. fan of new guitars. There's mythology yeah. in it, too. You know, there's got to be some kind... It's like almost like, you know, it's mythology in a way. It's like, you know, bigger than life. You know, I mean, if a guitar costs $100,000, it's got to be better. So there's that. Well, there's... Yeah, you know, vintage guitars can be great. <laughs> they can be bad. But and, and Tom would say that... Another person in that category comes to mind is Eric Johnson with his... All his different fuzz faces. Yeah. And, and yeah. like summer for different temperature days like yeah know. i've learned that yeah they, they they do temperature actually affects those those fuzz faces i just learned that really no yeah, kidding i'm talking reverse engineering at this late stage wow. i never cared about that stuff now i do it's as i'm learning about all this stuff isn't that interesting yeah. i find that like extremely fascinating yeah. you know yeah. um yeah there's a temperature-based component to those, those and, fuzzes. It, and that all ties into like the guys that know what those different germanium things are mm -hmm. OC 75 or they yeah. have all these numbers and they actually know which ones do what. Yeah. It's, I, yeah. I, I, I find that really interesting. Yeah. You know, uh, there's a guy, I think I actually turned you on to him is um, Hudson UK, uh -huh. the, the broadcast. Yeah. There's the minute I heard that it was like, there's something like white album about it or something. You're and, right. And uh, yeah. So these, they're like, they're crayons. That's what I, I call them, you know? And it's, it's kind of endless. Every time I come over here, I, I see a bunch of new stuff. And it's just it's really interesting. Anything you want to uh, mention of, of, of late that you've been really getting into as far as like effects or anything like that? I, I, I don't think so. I mean, if you just want to go to my YouTube channel, I That's tend to talk about the stuff that I believe in. Yeah. Like there's a fuzz pedal by King Tone that I did a video on, and I was astounded at how amazing it's got a it big knob. Yeah. It. Yeah. And you can't get them anywhere yeah. because of you. <laughs> That's true. That's true. The, the, the thing about being in this game is that if you do show something, yeah. you know, they're likely to sell out the worldwide inventory within a day or two. 
that's amazing that you have that kind of reach. But that's yeah. it's got to feel good to like help people too, though. I mean, like I, I look at the comments on some of your videos, and there's so many comments from people that are genuinely enthusiastic about what you've done for them as a player. It's the best part of it. When I go to NAM or anywhere where people congregate, that is the best part of it is the appreciation and the appreciation in the comments too. It runs deep, you know, it's yeah. like, it's, you know, as, as I get older, I want to share more information with people. That's one of the reasons why we got into the podcast. Yeah, great. It's just, you know, it just feels good um, to help people. And like a lot of young people today that are making records, like there's, there's good information out there and then there's not so good information out there. And so... You know, it, it, you want to try to help navigate people into a direction that, that, that can actually be really, you know, beneficial to them. And I feel that's one of the things we're, we're doing here. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new Factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon.
I'd like to talk about some of the other um, records, um, some of your favorites. And there's a, there's a lot of records that people don't know you played on, and I don't know. Can you talk about any, like, some of the records you did with, say, Brendan O'Brien? or? Well, the, 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 my favorite record, uh, probably out of all of them, is Iris by the Goo Goo Dolls, just because I love the song, and I would love it if I were on it or not. And I met a guy named Rob Cavallo on that session, and so we did more Goo Goo Dolls records after that, but that song... Got played on the radio more oh, than any massive. other song for about a year and a half. So it was really fun. And it's a beautiful song, and you hear it today, and it sounds just just as good. So those are rare when when that happens. I played the mandolin parts and then the electric guitar solo in that song. And I met Rob Cavallo, and we, we worked together for years, and we, we still work together. We're friends. So that was a really nice moment doing that. Working with Phil Collins on You'll Be In My Heart was another really, really nice moment. I mean... Tracking live with Phil on drums was oh my unbelievable. Gosh. You know, it's like you go, is this happening? this really happening he's so good i mean like I've, i'm a huge fan like from the brand x stuff the, the fusion stuff yeah and on yeah so yeah that's just the kind but of... I, I used to work with people in the middle of their careers like i did a tina turner record she was amazing i did five joe cocker records um you know i did a roger waters record uh with pat leonard and oh my so gosh yeah. when you end up working with with people that you I used to look at these people, and I had their records in my studio. You know, I worked with Jeff Beccaro for a long time. He used to recommend me for sessions. Um, so these musicians, you meet them, you work with them, and uh, it wasn't even always the uh, the big stars. Like, I'd, I'd be working with Peter Cetera or, you know, you know, just people that I'd idolized forever. And for me, it actually, some of the biggest musicians that I worked with, like like working with John Robinson and Jeff Beccaro and then Nathan East and Leland Sklar and then, you know, all the, the people, that, the musicians that I'd seen on records and then the producers, you know, like like David Foster or, um, you know, just uh, that, that was amazing to me. Trevor Horn. I worked with Trevor Horn for like 15 years. Oh, my gosh. Amazing. You have to talk a little bit about that because I mean... Yeah, just a, just a wonderful... Uh, Kind of like the way Joe collects guitars, Trevor Horn was very uh, um, objective. So here's a story about Trevor. Uh, we, I did a record with him. Uh, the first record I did was a Rod Stewart record. And one of the things we cut was Downtown Lights by the Blue Nile, which is a really great song, if anybody knows that song. But the first time I met Trevor, we were, on, um, uh, we were at Cherokee, and he was using the Sony 48-track digital machines. We were on Slave Age, so uh, A, B, C, D, E, F... GH, I think that is number eight of a 48-track machine. So he was a collector, a collector of everything, and then he would spend forever, you know, just refining and replacing. And your your idea with Trevor is to literally play something that he wouldn't erase later, because he would erase, he would just keep keep moving on. <laughs> One time, he hired John Robinson for two weeks to do all the drums on a record, you know, down at Henson or whatever, at great expense, the studio, the engineer, the session fees, everything. And then about a week later, he decided he liked the programming better. He just shelved all of it. So very, very uh, objective to the nth degree. That's like a mutt lang almost like... Exactly. Like yeah, taking exactly. things to the, yeah. The, yeah. The, the, the extreme. So I, those guys, the producers were more... I was more enamored with, you know, these, the, these record producers than than anybody else in some ways, but I really enjoyed it. And then, the, you know, I worked with Glenn Campbell before he died, and, you know, I was a huge Glenn Campbell fan. I worked, Three Dog Night was one of my favorite bands, and Chuck Negron was here in this room doing uh, sessions. You know, it's, and if you'd have told me when I was like, 
a kid, you know, it's like, <laughs> I would have like fainted. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. That's an incredible feeling. I, I got to experience that with Mark Farner because I, oh, as, sure, a, yeah. as a kid, I grew up listening yeah. to Grand Funk Railroad and yeah. there was a period like in around 2013 or so we, we did a song together and it was yeah. like, I was more nervous meeting him than I was meeting Elton because it Absolutely. was like, because I, you know, I, I, all I can see is him on the cover of that yeah. Fillmore album down on his knees, you know, with yeah. his hair back. It's like, you know, and then he walks in and I was just like, Karyati's like, dude, just like lighten up, you know, because yeah. I was like speechless still. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just an exciting thing to be able to. And he, yeah. man, could he sing? He sounds as, as good or better. So, you know, it's amazing yeah. that age makes some of these guys even better. Yep. You know? Um, Jeff Pacaro, what was that like being on? Did you play live on the floor with him? All the time, yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh, yeah. like Kenny, he's known as the first take dude. Oh, you know most drummers are, but but he, uh, you know, he just had a. Uh, it was like fine wine, you know. He just elegant is the word, you know. He everything he did sounded elegant, and uh, you just you, you you felt like when you were in the room with him, you were in the room with Steely Dan or Toto or whatever. You know, it's just like oh, this is the man. This is wow. the. And it just I can't believe he's here. I can't believe we're here. And he was super nice. He he had my stepson Nigel sit next to him on a stool for a whole day at a session. He was super. Here's how we became friends. Jeff used to show up super early because he lived in Hidden Hills at that time in the mm -hmm. 90s. So to, in order to make the drive palatable, he would just show up super early. And I would, too, because I would show up and build my gear. So we would show up at Motown Studios in Hollywood, and we'd be the only two people there at 9 in the morning. And so we would talk and warm up together and jam together. Oh, that's amazing. It wasn't calculated, but it was kind of like he was there just so he could get there and not worry about getting there late. And I was there so I could get there and not worry about my gear not working and get, you know, get rid of all the buzzes and everything. That's so, incredible. That's nice. totally, totally amazing. Anybody else comes to mind as far as the, that era, like the drummers, you know, that you, play, you mentioned uh, JR. Yeah, I was, I, I just, uh, drummers are magical, you know, and... Even today, I mean, Matt Chamberlain, you work with Matt Chamberlain and you can't believe what you're hearing. Oh, no. It's sonically, too, Matt's one of yeah. my favorites. Like, oh, you work he, with Victor and Drizzo, you can't believe what you're hearing. Jay Belrose, you know, these guys, they, they play the yeah. drums upside down with their hands yeah. and they do all it's, this crazy. It's just so I, I'm, I'm st you know, I'm just I'm in love with drummers and all the drummers back then, you know, just just crazy, crazy good. Unbelievable. American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. So, so yeah, let's talk a little bit about your YouTube channel, which is... Um, 
just growing exponentially. And how many guitarists, I mean, that you help every month. And the way that you present the information is really easy to digest. And it's, it's, it's fun and it's clear. Tell us a little bit about how that all came together, like the, the YouTube channel and, and that, that whole thing. Because I'd love to let people know a little bit about it. Absolutely. So I was sitting here, you know, I'm, I'm at the end of my fourth decade right now. 40 years of session work, and I was sitting here 12 years ago, nearing the end of 30 years of session work, and going, how do I want this to, uh, how do I want this to, I don't want to say the word end, but you you can't deny <clears throat> that as a session musician, there's an arc to your career, and if you've ever watched, what's the movie, uh, The Wrecking Crew? Oh, Sure. Even those guys talk about it. But those guys only had about five years. And then bands started taking over. They, they, their, their era was actually really short. And then there were other studio musicians that had 10 years, others that had 20. I have been lucky. I've had 40. But the, at the end of 30 years, I thought, okay, how do I want this to... What do I want this to... What's the shape of this? And, well, it will diminish. I will age out. There's a certain point where you... You can have the legend and the older musician, but at a certain point, the Tommy Tedesco adage is true. Who's Tommy Tedesco? Get me Tommy Tedesco. Get me a young Tommy Tedesco. Who's Tommy Tedesco? Wow. That's the truth. That's, 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 that's harsh, and, but real. And, and, mm. and so I'm sitting here 12 years ago going, okay, What's this phase? I've been doing this for three decades. It is, I am going to age out of this no matter what. Yeah. Now, the other thing that happened is that the industry changed and the value of a studio musician changed, too. So at this point, you don't need a studio musician because any guitar player can show up, do what they do. It's magical. It's wonderful. And any deficiencies they have can be fixed with the technology. Sure. It's not a complaint. Yeah. It's just, you Reality, know, yeah. I even, you know, it's like. I love that kind of I love somebody who just sits down and, you know, the thing about guitar, it's not like violin guitar any of your limitations become character. That's so interesting. And violin's not that way. Guitar, if you learn, if you play guitar for two years and you can, you can get something going, you can record that, you can fix it, and it can be on a huge record. It's just that the instrument is very forgiving. That's what, one of the things I always loved about it. That's it's very forgiving. The, yeah, that's, that makes a lot of sense. So these days, you don't need me. You don't need uh, any of the studio pros who were, you know, we had to come in and, and get stuff done immediately. Now, in Nashville, that system still is in place where they, they, they really value the people who can show up immediately. And certainly out here, it's the same way. I have a friend, Andrew Sinowick, who is busy all the time doing studio work, but he's also very, uh, very in demand in the television and film industry because he sight reads, he can play any, any instrument. So he has that going for him, too. Sure. So they, they do need him to do everything immediately and do it you know, amazingly. So it is still, it is this, the craft and the role and the job of studio musician is still important. It's just less important. There's less, less need for it in a general sense. So in addition to being of a certain age and having three decades behind me, there was also the change of the guard in music and technology and the fact that the job in general was going away. There might have been 50 of us in 1980. Now there's five of us, you know, sure. that kind of thing. Yep. It's, just, it's just the it's way. It's the same thing with producers. It's, I think I'm experiencing the exact same yeah. arc, you know. Yeah. It's like reinventing myself with, uh, you know, composing and Yeah, and that's the thing. You do multiple education, things now. Yeah, it becomes you know. part of the equation yeah. instead of all the yeah. equations. So I was aware, I'm coming to the conclusion of answering your question soon. No, I no, no, it's all great I was aware of... 
some people doing really, really big businesses with educational products. And when I found out that you could make a product and because uh, I always thought I would end up being a guitar teacher at sure. some point. And but this this is this is actually a product rather than a service. Now cut to right now, I have a business with four employees and I have thousands of members in my master class. And the, the masterclass has 150 hours of content and 1,800 videos, and I keep adding to it. It's a real business. And I love the business, and I actually like it better than the first business. That's what I didn't plan on. Plan B actually became plan A. I like it because it's a product rather than a service, so yep. uh, I don't have to be there for the, to earn the money. Yep. And I just keep, keep you know, managing everything in a, in a very you know, consistent way. But I'm not. I'm not running around putting out fires. I'm just. I'm. I'm making a product that people buy and Love. continue to buy. Yeah. So yeah, and the appreciation is wonderful, and it makes me feel good. And I started 12 years ago. I did a double shift for a decade doing both jobs, and now I only do session work for family, family and friends at this point. So yeah. it feels really, really good to be doing something new, and uh, something that's right for me at this point. But bottom line, I would have aged out anyway. It's like, how do you want? I mean, look at baseball, look at football. Music is actually very forgiving because a lot of the people we know keep going. You know, I worked with Rick Springfield for you know, five years in the 80s. He's arguably doing better now than he was then because he held on to his audience and he's touring everywhere right now. He's in his 70s. That's amazing. So musicians yeah. never stop. But as a hired studio musician sitting waiting for a call, no, it's you know, you know, those calls are going to go f to others at a certain point. Yeah. And uh, so, if you, you either have your own business or you you have clients or customers, now I have customers, and uh, I've given up the clients. That's that's so uh, smart and admirable, and you're just such a natural at it. If anybody that's watched your videos, you just you, you have a genuine enthusiasm that comes across. And, and that's a gift. Well, thank you. You know, that's that's not like not anybody can just sit down and do that. You know, so well, you you yeah. you, you know, you're, when you do something like this, uh, you know, if anybody wants to to get online and and do visual content, the first couple of years are always, shall we say, cringeworthy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just have to go. You have to have faith and go. I'm going to get better at this. It's going to get more comfortable, more easy. So yeah. Uh, for some, it does come immediately. Yeah. But for me, it did take a couple of years to actually get. A certain level going, and frankly, uh, you know, every year that passes, you do get a little better. You know, you experience that. You just sure. gets a little more natural, a little more, a little easier. Absolutely, to be yourself. Yeah, it's a little easier to be yourself. Well, that's so cool, Tim. It's been wonderful to have you here today, and um, I think I think I, I, at some point we should do another one because there's, there's a million things that I. I didn't get to, but I'm, I'm just, I'm, it's about all I can absorb right now. <laughs> well, I would love that. The thing is, yeah. and I've done that, with, and I, I did a podcast recently with a, a, a gentleman in Canada, Ben Coombs, and we did one, and I said, let's do it again, and we did it uh, again a month later. So th that is what we should do. Yeah, we should the, definitely. the next one will have a different, uh, yeah, yeah. whole different, ca different you know. slant. Yeah. yeah. Because I, there's so much more gear stuff to get into, yeah. Just, you know, so, but I, yeah. I just think it's a, a just wonderful experience to be here with you, and thank you. Well, so music much. is an amazing thing. I almost think these days, anybody, I, I think music should be part of your life. It doesn't have to be your whole life, um, or it can be your whole life. But I don't think anybody should feel bad if they have to work a straight gig and do music on the side that's almost the best way to do it at this point well sometimes when you think about what you got into like when you first get into music there's a certain kind of innocence and passion yeah that's really easy to get squashed with time industry you know and, and it's I, i'm constantly 
finding the child in me, rediscovering things. Like one of the things we're, gonna, we're working on now is the, uh, I won't say the song, but I'm doing a, a, a song from my childhood that's really, really special to me. And Tim and I are collaborating on it. And when I sit down to work on it, it's one of the harder things to do because it's like a song that I ran away from home in the eighth grade right. too, you know? Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> so it's like, it's really heavy. But, yeah. uh, but reconnecting with that little 13-year-old is, for me, a lot of times what's the best part of music. We're in the same place. Because I, I just did for my YouTube channel last Saturday, I did Give Me Shelter by the Stones. And just working that up, it gave me chills just to play it every time. And then when I did it, you know, the audience had the same Reaction. response. These things that, that, that lit us up when we were teenagers, to, to rediscover them and integrate them and make them ours again is it tickles nothing, weird... more, nothing more satisfying. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And, uh, spiritual and, or yeah. it, it's almost like I was on holy ground, you know. Basically, that's you know? the, that's yeah. exactly it, and that, yeah. I look forward to, to to that adventure with you. And on the next podcast we do together, we can maybe uh, debut that. That would be okay. Cool, yeah, we're, there we go. We're yeah. Getting there. Hey, that's that's how they would do it. Whoever yeah. they are. Yeah, that's the business. <laughs> that's what they would do. <laughs> that's what they. Let's do. do what they would do. Whoever they are. <laughs> exactly. Tim, wonderful to have you. Thank you so much. Likewise, I, I have superlatives for you. The, the music you bring over is always incredible. So, thank you so much yeah. coming from you. That means, you make great music. That means Thanks a lot this. to me. Take care, man. Take care. So, this is Anthony J. Resta, Studio Secrets A to Z, signing off. achieve the American dream, the big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.